Good evening, uh, everyone. A very warm welcome to you all to the Middle East Center for what's the first um, of our Friday evening lecture series this term. Uh, my name is Toby Mathiesen. I'm the uh, Adam Roberts Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East here. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to this um, panel discussion on the Gulf crisis and um, the increasing importance of Gulf states' foreign policy in the region. And um, we have two great speakers tonight, both of whom have a special connection to Oxford, which pleases us all very much. Um, the first speaker is Madawi al-Rashid, who is a visiting professor at the Middle East Center of the LSE. She was previously a professor of social anthropology at King's College London and a visiting research professor at the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. Her research has focused on Britain, Arab migration, Islamist movements, state and gender relations, Islamic modernism, society, religion and politics of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf foremost. Her latest book is entitled Muted Modernists, The Struggle Over Divine Politics in Saudi Arabia and was published by Hearst in 2015 and it's highly recommended. Her presentation today though draws on her forthcoming edited volume which is entitled Salman's Legacy, The Dilemmas of a New Era. I'm asking because um, I do have an article in that volume and I was trying to <laughs> cited in a forthcoming uh, essay of mine, and I think the title was still slightly different a while ago. But it's, um, and, and some other authors I, I see here in the audience as well, and it's a, a very exciting volume based on a, on a conference that Madawi organized in Singapore, and it is my great pleasure to have her here, and um, let's give a very warm uh, applause and welcome to her, and afterwards I'll introduce Courtney. Thank you, Toby. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very happy to be with you here to return to Oxford, uh, where I spent uh, uh, the first four years of my career as a, at Nuffield College as a postdoc for three years, and then I taught at the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology up the road. It was an experience that actually shaped my uh, future career and my ideas. So thank you, Toby, for bringing me back to Oxford and to St. Anthony's College specifically. Specifically. As uh, Toby said, my presentation will focus on the, um, my uh, sort of summary and uh, analysis of the last two, three years in Saudi Arabia when uh, after King Salman became king in 2015. And you see here um, the book's title, uh, with, I started um, by Salman's Kingdom. But as I progressed in editing the volume and putting the chapters together, things started happening in Saudi Arabia in a very, very dramatic way. So I kept changing the title just in case. And what was really most uh, difficult was to change the titles of the people in the book. So, for example, um, Mohammed bin Salman was deputy crown prince, then suddenly he became crown prince. Um, Mohammed bin Naif was crown prince, minister of interior, then suddenly he was nobody and he disappeared. So that uh, added at least three months of work uh, 
uh, to update the, uh, the, the, the introduction to the book. What was even more difficult was to just keep track of the economic changes that were happening or they were announced and then they were cancelled immediately. So the book, uh, by the time it, it gets published in March, it will be called Salman's Legacy. As uh, Toby said, in order to account for the changes or what might happen over the two the coming two months. Uh, Salman may not be king, uh, uh, but his legacy will, will remain. So in order to increase the shelf life of my forthcoming book, we settled on this title. So I'll be talking about some kind of challenges that had uh, faced the Saudi state. And according to some accounts, it is called the fourth Saudi state. Whether this is accurate, accurate way to describe what is happening under King Salman and his son, we will find out. As a social scientist, I would warn you from the very beginning that I have no magical answers to the question about the future of the House of Saud. And if you have been following the BBC documentary uh, last two Tuesdays, there is another one coming next Tuesday, which is the last episode in a three-episode series. Uh, you will find that even there, we, nobody can actually tell you whether the House of Saud is going to be with us in 2018 or is going to go. I think one important dimension of the book that I was preparing was to move beyond the two opposed narratives about Saudi Arabia. If you say the literature, there is one group of scholars, uh, journalists, analysts, observers of Saudi Arabia who always forecast the downfall of the House of Saud. And some of them had gone as far as giving a date, which had passed, by the way, on, on the collapse of the House of Saud. And they have reasons. They give reasons. Some of them are convincing. Others are actually wishful thinking. So this kind of scholarship exists. You could find it. But also on the other side, there is another type of scholarship that always tells us about the resilience of the House of Saud. And this is specifically appealing to British diplomats who always say, oh, we've seen it before. In the 50s and the 60s, the House of Saud survived Nasser, survived Saddam Hussein later. They're always resistant. And if you watch the episode of the BBC last week, you would actually realize why the House of Saud was resistant. It is the support of the British government in the early years that allowed it to survive. So there are these two opposed narratives that this is an established monarchy that will always be with us. It is the destiny of the Arabian Peninsula. On the other hand, there is the imminent collapse of the House of Saud. So the book is supposed to go beyond these two narratives and look objectively at the dilemmas and challenges facing the kingdom. And I specifically use the word dilemmas because... As you know, dilemmas are not easily resolved, whereas challenges, you could actually have a set of, uh, a set of strategies to deal with challenges, but dilemmas are more complicated and difficult. And King's dilemmas are even worse. What has happened in the world where the House of Saud lives and rules? Uh, of course, we all know what happened, the Arab uprising of 2011. But before that, they had sur actually survived uh, a, a series of challenges in the 50s and 60s. But those protests of the early, mid-sort of 
uh, 20th century were not similar to the ones that we witnessed in 2011. Uh, the slogans of 2011 were different. There were no organized groups in the sense that political parties or ideologies that inspired the protesters. They were not nationalists, they were not liberal, they were not Islamist. They were an amalgamation of multiple voices that occupied public squares. And the reason probably why they have failed is because they, were, they failed to institutionalize themselves in real uh, institutions and, uh, and seize power. So they were easily brought together uh, despite the repression they faced, but also they were easily dispersed and got ridden of. So the House of Saud felt really threatened simply because that protest that took place in the major urban centers of the Arab world, the historical centers of the Arab world, such as Cairo, uh, Tunisia, Sana'a, where there is a mass density, um, was threatening simply because the ideologies could not be dismissed as foreign, imperialist, nationalist, uh, leftist, etc. There were real people asking for dignity, for uh, a better life, and freedom from repression. Also, if the House of Saud survived the Arab nationalist wave of the 1950s and 60s, uh, and uh, 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 by mobilizing its religious establishment to depict those ideologies as foreign alien conspiracies against Islam and Muslims, uh, in 2011, they couldn't actually say that. But there was a kind of pan-Arabism that is new to the House of Saud and to the population of Saudi Arabia that they were not used to. This new pan-Arabism was grassroots, it wasn't coming from above, and it was based on solidarities among youth. And this is what, feared, what uh, the, the rulers of the Gulf in general, and Saudi Arabia in particular, feared most. So there were interregional spheres that were created at that historical moment of 2011 that were beyond the control of the autocratic, authoritarian rulers of the Arab world. Through social media, through new technology, um, the, the span uh, solidarity of Arab youth was uh, consolidating at the time. Of course, Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that no mass movement uh, came to the streets, there were signs of some kind of protest. But I deliberately put the protest in two images that actually remained separate. There was no cross-sectarian solidarities inside Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that there was a regional solidarity with other Arab protesters. So as you can see on the, on the right, uh, the Shia protesters uh, came to the street. They were asking initially for the right of their prisoners, uh, prisoners of conscience. On the left, in the same, uh, at the same time almost, Saudi Sunni protesters. I, I'm using this, this terminology, although there are uh, more to the conflict than the sectarianism or the sectarian terms that we use to describe what was happening in Saudi Arabia during that moment. So the old demands but of, of political freedom for political prisoners was combined with a new protest across different regions with no prospect for cross-regional solidarities. So the Shia in their eastern province were protesting while the Sunnis in their 
regions were protesting separately. At that time, the Saudi regime resorted to the old trick of amplifying the Iranian threat. And this was a good tool to be used against all protesters on the right and on the left. So at that time, it coincided, this movement of Arab protest across the region coincided with the last years of King Abdullah, an aging king who projected himself as the king of humanity. So in a way, he had around 10 years of glorifying his reforms and the changes he brought up, uh, he, he, uh, um, he introduced to Saudi Arabia. But his reputation as a reformist king began to decline towards the last two years of his rule. And we see that there was domestic stagnation taking hold over all state institutions. So whatever reform he introduced, other ministries would actually block the reforms. So in education, we know that there were some reforms with the curriculum and with also the religious affairs, uh, sacking some preachers and replacing them. But the job was actually beyond uh, Abdullah. He could not do that simply because he was still sharing power with other princes. And we will see how this is going to change with Salman. So the, the social and religious reforms that he wanted or announced to the world as the king of humanity began to stagnate and nothing was happening. So on women's driving, on women's guardianship system, on some religious reform of the religious affairs institutions, we find that plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more he promised change, the less likely that we are going to see change. 2014 came the oil crisis, which actually undermined everything that had happened before, simply because there was overspending during the, uh, what is called the tufra, the years of affluence, after Abdullah became king, when uh, oil prices rocketed, and um, there was quite a lot of people who benefited from that moment. But in 2014, we see the collapse. In terms of foreign relations, Iran remained the constant, the constant threat or perceived threat in Saudi Arabia to the extent of replacing all other threats. So the Saudi populace began to be indoctrinated into the idea that the threat comes from Iran and nobody else in the region. So, for example, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict became completely sidelined. And uh, we begin to see the discourse in Saudi Arabia about normalization with Israel if we have a common enemy with Israel, uh, that is Iran. So <coughs> Saudi Arabia, during the last years of King Abdullah, did actually see an erosion of its influence across the region, despite the rhetoric. So there was very weak regional influence in places like Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. It was so obvious if you go to Lebanon during that period, and even today, even more so, that Saudi Arabia is no longer the arbiter of Lebanese affairs. In fact, it's actually deteriorated so much that is, its influence is practically non-existent. In Syria, since 2006, Saudi influence had almost vanished, and Bashar al-Assad was completely drawn into the Iranian sphere of influence. In Iraq, since 2003, Saudi Arabia failed to reach out to Iraqi constituencies, although it tried 
to play the tribal element, it tried to play the Sunni element, and finally it tried the party politics of Iraq, sponsoring Alawi and promoting certain candidates in the Iraqi, successive Iraqi elections. None of that led to any kind of success or a foothold in Iraq, or a return to some kind of normality. Then comes the GCC crisis. And first it started with Oman, uh, especially after the nuclear agreement with Iran that was orchestrated and under the patronage of the Omanis who actually introduced, who facilitated the dialogue between the US and the Iranians behind Saudi Arabia's back. So it's ironical when Saudi Arabia was expecting President Obama to bomb Iran, in fact, he was negotiating with the Iranians, which led to that nuclear agreement. Qatar as well, from 2009, the situation deteriorated and there were serious issues um, with diplomatic relations cut, and although they were resumed and the crisis uh, probably, I think Courtney will talk about it from the Qatari side. Even Turkey... Turkey, it started a partnership with Saudi Arabia and cooperation, especially over the Syrian file, facilitating the transfer of weapons, uh, fighters to, to, to Syria. But this partnership ended in a disaster now, as the Turks uh, had sided openly with the Qataris in the recent crisis. U.S., the main ally, the main patron of Saudi Arabia, also during the last years of King Abdullah witnessed some kind of upheaval. Um, The relationship was very, very troubled. And uh, if one uh, looks at the Obama uh, legacy, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, we find that despite the fact that the relationship openly was uh, really deteriorating, Obama did manage to sell Saudi Arabia or what he called the free riders, weapons that exceeded the sale during any other president. So yes, there is that uh, element that continues to be constant. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal contributed to the rift with, uh, with the US and also the failure to intervene at the request of the Saudis in Syria. Then we get to the terrorism, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Despite the rhetoric of cooperation, Saudi Arabia joined the international coalition against ISIS, but in fact its sorties, its airstrikes in Syria, probably they had one or two at the time they, in 2005, they were very busy in bombing Yemen. We come to Trump, and here we have a serious shift in the relationship. The rift is mended with with the president, with President Trump, and there is a revival of the so-called special relationship between Saudi Arabia and the US. Something happened during the election campaign of Trump and then when he became president. And I think this is guesswork, and we could discuss it later, that uh, all US, British, I think all intelligence services in the West they really put all their eggs in the basket of Mohammed bin Naif. They saw him as the one who uh, uh, fought Al-Qaeda. He is their partner in intelligence and in, in fighting terrorism. But within a week, Mohammed bin Naif received a medal from the CIA, and then immediately he was sacked. And Mohammed bin Salman 
became the new face of Saudi Arabia. After several years of everybody thinking, especially in the West, that Mohammed bin Naif will be the future king. This did not happen so far. And we can't take anything for granted these days <coughs> in Saudi Arabia. So uh, the partnership, the deal, Mohammed bin Salman is now the face of Saudi Arabia, but what is the price that Mohammed bin Salman needs to pay in return for the U.S. approval and sanction of his role as the future king? And I think a deal is being prepared, and I think it's over Israel as well, without certain kind of assurances that Saudi Arabia will support normalization with Israel and didn't make a big fuss over Jerusalem, then Mohammed bin Salman will be secure in his position as a client of the U.S., the IPO of Aramco is another uh, stick that Mohammed bin Salman has uh, promised to, to do in New York with great benefit for the American economy. And also the, uh, the constant fear from now another economic competitor when Trump became president is China. China, um, I mean, when I was in Singapore for a year, I could see the Middle East through the eyes of, of the Far East, and we, we see that there is great talk about new opportunities in the Gulf, and especially the Chinese One Belt, One Road project that will go all the way to Europe, but it will have to pass by Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries. One thing that we don't, probably people in the US don't appreciate is that China, India, Japan, they are the ones who are really dependent on Saudi oil. So whatever, whatever happens on Saudi Arabia or in, in other Gulf countries matters most to them. Their economies will be devastated, whereas in the US, probably they will be affected because of the price of oil going up, down, etc., but not their livelihood, I would say. So Salman's legacy, there is, the first thing is everybody thought, well, there is an, a smooth succession. He became king as planned as brown prince, and nobody challenged him. But we have a gradual eradication of the ancien regime in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia had always, since the mid-20th century, been a kingdom of multiple fiefdoms, with each son, senior son of the founder of the kingdom, Sultan, Naif, Salman, Abdullah, and, and many others, had a fiefdom. They ruled after the death of King Faisal uh, in 1975, the kingdom as a kingdom of multiple circles of power, multiple fiefdoms. And this continued for almost 45 years. But with Salman, he was the only one who was able to change the multiple fiefdoms and make himself the only fiefdom. How did he manage to do that? There is a question of demography. None of the Saudi kings before Salman was able to push his brothers aside and uh, make the succession go through his own sons. Uh, it was difficult. You cannot remove Prince Sultan from the Ministry of Defense. You cannot re remove Prince Naif from the Ministry of Interior. But all of those people are dead now, and Salman, because of demography and old, the old age of the remaining almost insignificant brothers that he has, he was able to do what he did basically move from a horizontal succession to a vertical succession, meaning that the future king will be Mohammed bin Salman and his sons. So he was able to change the succession. He uh, immediately sacked Mugrin, 
uh, promoted Mohammed bin Nayef initially, but then sacked him in June 2017, and then promoted his son. This, I think this picture is so reflective of what happened in a very, very short period. He looks very sad, and he was the deep state of Saudi Arabia. He was in charge of the, of the intelligence services, of the internal security, domestic affairs. He has a fiefdom called the Ministry of Interior with over 500,000 employees, from teachers to judges. But he was removed very, very quickly and silenced. So I put silence forever. We don't know what will happen. People ask me always, like, but he had all those followers in his ministry. And wouldn't someone defend him, prevent his complete and total marginalization? And this applies also to another prince I'm going to talk about. And I would say, why would a Saudi employee of the Ministry of Interior jeopardize his life, his salary, for a battle among princes? Nobody's willing to do that. Nobody is willing to actually rock the boat for a prince. This is a battle in a, an absolute monarchy that is very re repressive, authoritarian, and bloody sometimes, that nobody's going to sacrifice their life for a battle between competing princes. <laughs> the Saudi uh, propaganda machine uh, immediately uh, presents us with this image that Mohammed bin Salman, the young prince, is, is in a humble position, kissing the hand of his senior in age and was also in position in gratitude for departure. The, uh, the marginalization of princes takes place, again, in a very, very subtle way. And pro unfortunately, we, don't, we hear a lot about the resident of the Ritz-Carlton in Saudi Arabia these days. But those are just images of people who have actually been put in prison since Salman came to power. Uh, amongst them, Sheikh Salman al-Oda and very, very young scholars and uh, uh, professors, teachers, and activists. Unfortunately, um, Toby mentioned my book, uh, Muted Modernist, and uh, Muted Modernist was written in 2000, uh, was published in 2015, and it, it has the ideas of so many Saudi scholars. All of them today are in prison. None of them is out of prison, apart from one who had actually left Saudi Arabia. Therefore, the, the, uh, the kind of moderate Islam that Mohammed bin Salman is promising goes up in the air when we know that um, a kind of moderate Islam needs debate among scholars, among researchers of Islamic studies, of the interpreters of the tradition. But if you put most of them in prison, there's nobody to debate with and there's no moderate Islam to emerge. In terms of consolidating power, after getting rid of Mohammed bin Nayef, we come to Mit'ab bin Abdullah. Mit'ab bin Abdullah, of course, it was the anti-corruption purge, but in fact, it was about consolidating all powers, military and other powers, into the hand of one person, Mohammed bin Salman. So the Saudi National Guard, um, the tribal force, it was almost like Hashd Qabali, and I borrow this from the Iraqi, Iraqi uh, recent politics about Hashd al-Sha'bi. This is Hashd Qabali. And people ask, why haven't they defended their commander, uh, Mit'ab bin Abdullah, for the same reason that nobody is willing to defend Muhammad bin Nayef? Those are soldiers who are recipient of benefits, 
of all kinds, from hospitals to salaries to housing, compounds, etc. Nobody is going to die for a prince. That's the important message. These are princes who are fighting a battle amongst themselves. And the Saudi people are completely isolated from this battle. So there is an expression in uh, Lebanese Arabic which says, So basically, when Saudis watch this, they think, well, these are uh, pots that are being cracked, and it's their business, not our business. Again, in the name of anti-corruption, there's a lot written about Al-Walid bin Talal. And um, so, in a way, after ensuring total uh, control over the means of coercion, the military apparatus of the state, now we come to the economic and financial competitors and hubs, whether they are uh, elite, capitalists, uh, entrepreneurs, or princes. Because of the short, the, the budget deficit, the successive budget deficit that the Saudi government had experienced since 2014, there is a shortage of money. There is a shortage of money and there is a dilemma. You tax your population, you worry that they start asking questions. You keep the benefits and increase the benefits, you worry about your budget. So there are serious dilemmas. And what's happened in the Ritz or now in Al-Hayr prison where Walid bin Talal is, is supposed to be held, we find that the battle is now moving into the economy, which would make foreign investors worry. It, it is actually ironic that the anti-corruption purge should be celebrated by foreign investors moving into Saudi Arabia, but it worries them most now. The old economic elite, the ministers, the um, other people who had actually always been loyal to the king of the time. They made a lot of money. Some of them are ministers. Others are simple, I mean, are simply private sector that lived on contracts with the state. There is no independent private sector that could survive without the purchasing power of the state. And once the purchasing power of the state becomes diminishes, then we see that Mohammed bin Salman is actually moving, seizing the assets of these private companies. Saad al-Hariri was one of those figures whose assets were actually um, had to be seized because of the financial difficulties that he found himself when the Saudi state stopped or decreased its purchasing power. I'm going to conclude now. Uh, is this a, fa a fourth Saudi state? Obviously, there are certain uh, continuities with the past, but also there are new features emerging. These features cannot have any sense of permanency, simply because we have seen constant and erratic changes taking place because the dilemmas cannot be resolved. The dilemmas, first, is the legitimacy of the House of Saud. The House of Saud ruled Arabia as a jihadi project from the very beginning, and the, the rhetoric narrative was that this is a house that uh, establishes an Islamic state that rules according to the law of God. And it is committed to defending Muslims worldwide. And most recently, Sunni Muslims, rather than just Muslims. So this narrative has to be replaced. They have to find a legitimacy narrative to justify why they are, they are the rulers of the Arabian Peninsula. Economic development, security, can be a new legitimacy narrative. But they have to deliver. And so far, there is a lot of phantasmagoric, sort of promises, visions, but 
it has not translated into real jobs, into real economic development. Salman's kingdom is obviously trying to uh, change the succession. And if all goes well, he will die, and then his son will become king, and then the son's son will become king. So we have now the multiple fiefdoms excluded. Uh, They still have privileges. They still have monthly salaries. They still rule as if they are little kings in their own little palaces. But they will not be the five, the big five lineages that emerged from the offspring of the founder of the kingdom. So from multiple fiefdoms to centralized state, and we may have to remember the time when King Faisal ruled, when he centralized all powers in his own hands and put lid on the ambitions of his brother Saud, who wanted to do exactly what King Salman succeeded in doing, but Saud failed simply because Saud was confronted by these young, energetic brothers. Salman does not have young, energetic brothers. He has to manage, or his son has to manage, the young cousins rather than the uncles. The uncles are finished. They're part of history. Also, there is the regional alliances that are shifting. Saudi Arabia so far does not have a local regional power. It has always seeked Uh, sought to rely on a local Arab power. And at one moment in 2011, it thought Egypt was slipping away from it. And Sisi has been brought back, but Sisi is, is a fox. And he's not willing to do exactly what Saudi, Arabia, what Saudi Arabia wants him to do. He may agree with them on the Muslim Brotherhood, but he doesn't agree on Lebanon and Yemen. So uh, Toby is uh, telling me to, to stop. What I think I'd, my concluding remark is that there is a serious loss of consensus in Saudi royal politics, and we, I do not know what will happen after that. Our next speaker is Courtney Freer, who is a research officer at uh, the LSE and whose work focuses on the domestic politics of the Arab Gulf states with a particular focus on Islamism and tribalism. Her DPhil thesis, written at a very prestigious institution whose uh, exact name I can't read, revised rentier state theory by examining the sociopolitical role played by Muslim Brotherhood groups in Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE, a book version of which will shortly be published by OUP as Rentier Islamism, the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood in the Gulf Monarchies. And therefore, I thought she would be an excellent addition to this panel, and um, I look forward to hearing from her. Thank you. Thanks, Toby. It's great to be back, and even better to be back at St. Anthony's, not writing up my thesis. Um, So that's fantastic. Um, So I'm going to focus more specifically on kind of the latest GCC crisis and particularly the Qatari side of in all of this. So I think what's interesting is when we start looking at what's happened in 2017 between Qatar and the rest of the GCC is really looking back to the previous 2014 spat. And I think really they both have at their root cause frustration with the perceived Qatari foreign policy and Qatari media's tilt towards Islamists and specifically the Muslim Brotherhood. 
So the first feud, which of course was far less public and far less kind of intense than this one, um, emerged, in, emerged due to Qatar's failure to accede to demands of a GCC agreement signed in November 2013. It called for the removal from Qatar of, in, and this is a quote, anyone threatening the security and stability of the GCC, whether as groups or individuals via direct security work or through political influence, and not to support hostile media. So in essence, against the Muslim Brotherhood and Al Jazeera. As a result, Bahraini, Saudi, and Emirati ambassadors withdrew from Qatar in March 2014, only to return six months later, or nine months later, rather, math is difficult, um, in November of 2014. And this was after Qatar had expelled seven senior members of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and pledged to stop attacking Egypt via Al Jazeera, primarily by removing the platform of Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood ideologue Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who had previously had television programs on Al Jazeera and on Qatar TV. So since the implementation of that prior GCC deal and the, the finishing of that rupture in November 2014, and between that period and June of last year, we actually saw a period of, of detente uh, when relations between the GCC seemed to, to be going quite well, especially when it came to the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood. So what exactly happened uh, to get us back here today where we have much the same language being used in the 13 demands from the anti-Qatar quartet, or whatever you like to call them, as they issued in 2014? So I think it's, it's uh, important to note, again, the importance of Islamist groups in this story. When the story first broke in May 2017 about the alleged hacking of Qatar news agency, um, this led to the posting first of kind of pro-Iranian uh, sentiment or rhetoric from Qatar's emir, Sheikh Tamim bin, uh, bin Hamad al-Thani. And this was used as the initial reason by many GCC states for distancing themselves from Qatar. Um, because, as Madawi mentioned, this isolation of, of Iran has become increasingly important for the GCC. Uh, none, and this is in particular after Trump's visit and the further alienation of Iran or desire to alienate it. But despite these initial headlines uh, highlighting the Iran portions of the statements uh, or alleged statements in the hacking, the rhetoric, in my estimation, has changed to focus primarily on Qatar support for Islamist groups. And Sheikh Tamim, in the statements on the hacked Q&A, allegedly dubbed Hamas, whose leadership, of course, has long been in Qatar, as the official representative of the Palestinian uh, people. Support for Islamists has also notably been twisted into Qatar's promotion of terrorism, or as the American president went so far as to dub Qatar, of course, via twi Twitter, a funder of terrorism at a very high level. And so I think we see the beginning of this policy of conflating Muslim Brotherhood and any other kind of nonviolent Islamist groups with violent jihadi organizations. Again, in both crises, as I mentioned, Qatar support, whether tacit or active, of Islamist groups, uh, particularly the Brotherhood, has led to its alienation from its neighbors, especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE. As a whole, I would argue that government treatment in the GCC of Muslim Brotherhood organizations seems to vary according to A, the degree to which regimes consider Muslim Brotherhood groups aligned with broader political reform movements, and B, the degree to which political freedom is afforded to independent groups. Independent Islamist organizations are considered more politically threatening, I'd say, in the closed systems of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, where Brotherhood-linked individuals have also um, kind of gone along with pro-reform movements, especially during the Arab Spring. I'd say they're, more, they're seen as more dangerous there than in places like Bahrain and Kuwait, where Muslim Brotherhood affiliates to this day compete for parliamentary seats and therefore have a place in policy formation through institution, institutions of government. Um, just to touch on, on Oman, because otherwise I won't mention it, uh, this Brotherhood there has not really been a major 
um, aspect uh, since the majority of the population is not Sunni. But when we come to the Qatari case, um, we don't hear much about the Qatari Brotherhood, except that Qatar is allegedly backing Brotherhood groups abroad. And I, I'd say that actually the Qataris have chosen to work alongside or strategically co-opt the Brotherhood instead of shutting it down like its neighbors. So when we look at the Qatari Brotherhood, it, it's actually it's an interesting case. It formally chose to dissolve itself in 1999, following a study in which it concluded that it really wasn't adding much to the welfare of Qatari citizens. Indeed kind of makes sense. There are no elections to run for, and also there's no need to provide material welfare for Qatari citizens. And so it dissolved itself in 1999, having been established in 1975. During the brief period it did exist, the Qatari Brotherhood never had a political arm and primarily organized social and educational events, um, indeed lacking a, a means to disseminate its ideology through a, an official publication, except for a brief period from 1980 to 1986. And also lacking even a formal meeting place, it really never seemed to have harbored ambitions beyond the spiritual and the intellectual. So possibly because of a lack of a political opening, and partly due to what I'd say is general satisfaction with the prevailing system in Qatar, the Islamist sector in that country has not become really politically active in any type of nascent reform movement. Um, further, because the government has been public about its intentions to and the need to expand public participation in government, there's less space for brotherhood and other agitation in that field. In addition, we see some Brotherhood members having hailed from certain prominent families inside of Qatar, leading the relationship between the ruling elites and the Brotherhood there to be hardly subversive. So this non-confrontational relationship, unsurprisingly, has led the government to be more accepting of the Brotherhood, not only at home but also abroad. This dynamic, of course, differs considerably when we look at Saudi Arabia and the UAE, where members of Brotherhood-affiliated movements have aligned themselves with larger-scale political reform organizations, leading governments in those states to harbor their suspicions towards bro the Brotherhood and other Islamist movements. Indeed, I've written elsewhere, and you can read about it further in my book, um, about the potential for Islamists to provide ideological inspiration for citizens in rentier states, despite the fact that they're being provided for materially by their rulers. So, so when we look at Qatar, the government really has been informed by its, its experience at home and therefore has backed Islamist movements <laughs> overseas, at least to a certain extent, to advance the country's influence globally rather than to advance any single ideology. And in fact, when we look at groups that Qatar has sponsored abroad throughout the Arab Spring, they're not from one strand of Islamism. They're not all brotherhood groups. It's actually a bit of a mess. And so I think this shows uh, also the personalistic nature of foreign policy in the Gulf that, you know, for instance, the Al-Salabi brothers from Libya were based in Qatar, and so Al-Salabi group gained funds from Qatar. So it's quite a personalized system, I would argue. And so there's not, one, not really room for ideology in all of this. And also another, another signal of the lack of ideology is that Qatar has not, the Qatari <coughs> government hasn't implemented any kind of Islamist type of policies at home. And so, indeed, if it, weren't, if it did have an ideological connection to the Brotherhood, we would expect Doha to look a lot more like uh, Riyadh or Kuwait City, for instance. So I'd say that pragmatism overall overrides ideology for the Qatari, the Qatari leadership. And so this leads the Qatari government to behave internationally not out of ideological commitment, but out of a pragmatic assessment of how the region works. Islam is important. The Muslim Brotherhood is the biggest, oldest, and most organized independent Islamist group, and so it's considered to be an effective interlocutor. Closely related to Qatar's willingness to engage with the Brotherhood, of course, is, uh, to boost its international standing, is, of course, um, its competition with Saudi Arabia and its desire to distinguish itself from kind of the big brother in Riyadh. This was particularly important for Sheikh Tamim's father, Sheikh Hamad bin Talifa al-Thani, 
as the Saudis allegedly backed a coup attempt against him in 1996 after he overthrew his father, Sheikh Khalifa, in 1995. Sheikh Hamad's generation had a living member, memory of subservience to Saudi Arabia under the reign of Sheikh Hamad's father, Sheikh Khalifa, who was very close to Riyadh. Backing the Brotherhood, or at least not cracking down on it, was therefore seen as a way that Qatar could distinguish itself from the kingdom, which has been particularly outspoken against the organization, at least in the past couple of years. So Qatar's policy during the Arab Spring, which of course were at the root of the first GCC spat and have been brought up repeatedly in the second crisis, distinguished itself from neighboring Gulf states, which were, especially during the Arab Spring, considered to lead something of a counter-revolution against the region's popular revolts. Qatar was particularly proactive, of course, in Libya and Syria, where it provided material support for Islamists of varying ideological leanings, as I mentioned. Further, Qatar's backing of Mohamed Morsi's brotherhood-led government in Egypt from June 2012 to July 2013 was considered the clearest evidence of its Islamist bent. During the 13 months that Morsi was in power, Qatar pledged to lend or grant a a staggering $7.5 billion to Egypt. Um, Still, Qatar maintained that its support was not for the Muslim Brotherhood per se, but rather for a popularly elected Egyptian government, which is interestingly the same kind of logic that the Obama administration um, was expressing during this time. Also, considering that Egypt you know, is the, the largest Arab state, making, having a, a good working relationship with the ruling party is pragmatic in and of itself. And so this was justified by reasons of realpolitik and rather than ideology. Since the fall of the Morsi government in July 2013, the regime under Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, of course, has uh, suspended negotiations on the purchase of Qatari natural, natural gas, in addition to returning some $2.5 billion that Qatar had deposited in the state's nat- um, in the state central bank under Morsi following Qatar's postponement of the delivery of that aid and its imposition of conditions for its receipt. At the same time, though, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have stepped in, of course, to provide more aid um, to Egypt immediately following Morsi's overthrow. So you could argue that actually the Saudi and Emirati reaction was much more ideologically based than Qatar's reaction, which was more pragmatic to kind of back the ruling power. Um, President Sisi also ratified a treaty approved by Egyptian parliament, but not yet approved by the constitutional court, to hand over the Red Sea islands of Tehran and Sanafir back to Saudi control. And so we see ties between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt flourishing, and Qatar increasingly alienated as what one uh, Gulf policy analyst described, a mini-Ikhwanistan. Um, and so this it led to the isolation and justified the isolation of Qatar for the first time in 2013, and again has justified it in 2017. So under the leadership of of Sheikh Tamim, to whom Sheikh Hamad passed power in June 2013, the relationship between Qatar and Saudi Arabia actually, ironically, appeared initially to be changing for the better, reflecting just how individualized government systems really are in this part of the Gulf. Tellingly, Sheikh Tamim's first trip abroad was to Riyadh, um, and he made uh, extensive efforts in 2013 and 2014 to mend the diplomatic spat, and this led to a brief detente. Indeed, and it's remarkable thinking this now, um, following Sheikh Tamim's visit to Riyadh and in the face of accusations from the Egyptian government in February 2015 that Qatar supported terrorism in Libya, the Bahraini secretary general of the GCC, Abdelatif al-Zayani, vociferously defended Qatar. He stated that the accusations were, in his words, unfounded, contradict reality, and ignored the sincere efforts by Qatar as well as the Gulf Cooperation Council and Arab states in combating terrorism and extremism at all levels. 
Just two years after the detente, however, the very same GCC chief made the statement that, again, his words, there is a need to monitor the movement of Qatari nationals because of their complicity in acts of terror. So we see a big swing, and this was uh, incidentally in the period after I finished my thesis. So at the end of, at the end of my thesis in 2015, it seemed this is, that this um, fight over the Muslim Brotherhood had kind of finished. But we see it, we see it changing in, in other instances as well. So also in 2015, Saudi Arabia, under King Salman, of course, um, hosted the International Union for Muslim Scholars, which is headed by Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, is based in Doha, and has been dubbed a terrorist organization by the UAE. The fact that it was hosted inside of Riyadh is incredible now because in September of 2017, Sheikh Salman al-Awda and other prominent members of that very organization were arrested. And so we see an exact shift of policy in just the space of two years. Still, um, I'd say that the key feature of this spat is Qatar's independent foreign policy, which has been particularly um, active since Hamad bin Khalifa al Thani's reign in 1995. And the Qataris since that period have uh, been willing to balance the interests of several different parties, often with competing agendas to sustain their influence in the region. Qatar's support for Islamist groups, its cordial relations with Iran at times, and its former ties with Israel, which until January 2009 had a trade office in Doha, are often cited as proof of Qatar's ideological flexibility, born of political pragmatism, or, as some people put it, punching above its weight. For instance, by balancing Iran against Iraq in the pre-2003 era, balancing Israel against the rest of the Arab world pre-2009, and balancing the U.S. against other regional actors, Sheikh Hamad managed to keep Qatar safe from aggression and also maintain regional atten attention. Its wide and varied networks of guests and partners can also be seen as an example of political aspiration. Qatar seeks to identify emerging trends and actors and create a place for itself within those trends in order to maintain political currency. And perhaps the best example of this is Qatar's hosting of the leadership of Hamas as well as of the Taliban office. Despite the fact that these are vaguely Islamist groups, um, there is a long list of non-Islamists who have also found refuge in Qatar, but we don't really hear about them too much. Among the non-Islamists who are in Qatar now are controversial Indian artist M.F. Hussein, former Iraqi minister Naji Sabri al-Hadithi, much of Saddam Hussein's family, and former Knesset member and influential pan-Arabist Azmi Bashara, who is said to advise the Amiri Jawan. Similarly, Qatar, by hosting Al Jazeera, along with websites like Islam Web and Islam Online, allows outlets for massive populations in the Arab and Muslim worlds, while also allowing the Qatari state at least limited control over what is discussed in these fora. So over the course of 2017, we see not only the continuation of this policy of having different networks of actors, regional actors and groups inside of Qatar or related to Qatar, we also see tensions building, bringing back old issues to the fore. For instance, in May 2017, Qatar hosted a Hamas meeting wherein the group publicly dropped any link to the Muslim Brotherhood and presented a new political program meant to soften its image as an extremist or terrorist organization as it included the acceptance of Palestinian borders along 1967 lines. Such a move highlighted not only the prevailing political influence of Islamist groups, but also the way in which Qatar has found a foothold in what is perhaps the critical regional issue by providing a haven for certain political figures. Statement from Qatari Foreign Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Athani in mid-May 2017 certainly didn't help matters. Um, he stated he reaffirmed that Qatar had not banned the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and also stated in his words, "We do not, will not, and have not supported the Muslim Brotherhood." Nonetheless, he was um, unapologetic about Qatar's policy of, again in his words, supporting any individual that assumes a presidency in Egypt in a clear and transparent manner. 
Emboldened by the visit of Donald Trump, whose administration has itself pondered designating the Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, the Saudi government has doubled down on its anti-Qatar rhetoric, further bolstered by the support of the UAE, which of course arrested around 100 members of a Brotherhood-affiliated movement in 2012. A March 2017 story in Al Arabiya signaled the turn against the Brotherhood and especially the American role in that. In, in the story in March 2017 documents a phone call between Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who had by that time, or yeah, <laughs> who was rising in the ranks at that time, um, and details the conversation between him and Donald Trump talking about links between the Muslim Brotherhood and Osama bin Laden. So again, we see this policy of conflating the Muslim Brotherhood, which is largely a political organization, and jihadist figure of Osama bin Laden. So where the Qataris see Islamists as potential political partners, the Emiratis and Saudis consider them existential threats, with the potential to demand political reform in very closed system of systems of government. So while this policy of isolating the Brotherhood, and by extension Qatar, seems to make sense for Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, wherein we've seen Brotherhood-linked movements agitating for political reform, What's interesting is when we look at Bahrain, which still has a Muslim Brotherhood political arm in parliament. And it's, it's also the only one of the anti-Qatar quartet that is not formally designated the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, though its foreign minister has referred in public remarks to the Brotherhood as a terrorist group. Indeed, because in Bahrain, oppositional Islamist movements tend to be Shia rather than Sunni, the Muslim Brotherhood there has traditionally been allied with al-Khalifa ruling family and has actually been represented in parliament since 2002. To maintain its position in, government's favor, in the government's favor, the Brotherhood's political arm in Bahrain, al-Minbar, has been very careful to distinguish itself from the international Muslim Brotherhood and other more oppositional Brotherhood movements in the region. In 2014, the president of al-Minbar stated... All eyes of the voters are on us, and they say we are the Muslim Brotherhood, which is not right. It is the ideology that we follow, but we do not have the organization in Bahrain, neither do we support it. Al-Minbar also supported the government in denouncing protesters in Bahrain during, uh, starting in the Arab Spring as Iranian or Shia agents, proving again their utility to the regime. As a result, we see Bahrain's foreign minister affirming in 2014 that the Bahraini Muslim Brotherhood has, in his words, a special status in that country. This doesn't really seem to be changing, but is, it could potentially be interesting in the future. But I'd say that regardless of whether the Brotherhood is banned throughout the Gulf, and regardless of what happens in Qatar, support, support for Brotherhood beliefs is likely to remain. Meanwhile, leaders of Saudi Arabia and the UAE will continue to harbor suspicions of the Brotherhood, I'd say for three primary reasons. The first is that its ideology cannot be bought off. The second is that the group has transnational roots. And the third is that its affiliates have had links with local movements for political reform. Reaching middle ground, then, when it comes to the Brotherhood and its treatment, as well as the treatment of related Islamist groups, has been understandably difficult and has made resolution of the crisis to this point elusive. Further, I think, with comparing the 2014 and 2017 crises, we see the very public nature of this more recent, um, this more recent fight, uh, which has made it, again, near impossible for, people to for Gulf citizens to remain uninvolved, um, as well as kind of analysts of the region. Although one of the root causes of the crisis was actually the politicized nature of Al Jazeera's broadcasts, the crisis has had the effect of politicizing many, many other media outlets. Further, because showing sympathy for Qatar has been criminalized in Bahrain and the UAE, the only coverage in these states is necessarily one-sided. And so this has led to the publication of several kind of outrageous stories on both sides of the aisle, 
Um, and I'd say that the claims in, in the media about Qatar have become particularly outlandish and have also come from kind of surprisingly high levels of government. So such, just a sampling of kind of the sto- types of stories we're seeing is Abu Dhabi's ambassador to, then ambassador to Russia claimed that Qatar had given al-Qaeda information about Emirati troop positions in Yemen. A Saudi daily claimed that Qatar um, also conspired with Iran to delay the execution of Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr by negotiating the release of Qatari hunters in Iraq. Sky News Arabia, which is co-owned by an Abu Dhabi company and UK Sky, released a documentary in July claiming to reveal Qatari involvement in the 9-11 attacks. And my personal favorite, uh, the Saudi daily Okaz, claimed that the Qatar-owned London department store Harrods was collecting the credit card details of shoppers from the Quartet countries. For what reason, I'm not sure. Um, but the point is that this kind of this type of rhetoric d- really doesn't encourage de-escalation. And looking this past week, um, which has been pretty crazy, uh, the activities that have happened also don't encourage de-escalation. So we've seen just this week uh, Qatar's submission of a letter to the UN Security Council complaining of Emirati violation of its airspace. The Emirates, in turn, has accused Qatar of sending fighter jets to intercept two Emirati airliners en route to Bahrain, and so has submitted a complaint of its own. This all happened after Sunday night when an exiled Qatari ruling family member, Sheikh Abdullah bin Ali Al Thani, who was once promoted by the quartet as a potential contender of the throne to the contender to the throne and replacement of Sheikh Tamim, appeared in an online video claiming he was being he had been kidnapped essentially in Abu Dhabi, um, which of course the Emirati government has denied. Um, Sheikh Abdullah has since been really, has since traveled to Kuwait and is apparently being hospitalized there. So all of this, aside from being somewhat bizarre, um, has happened in the aftermath of a GCC summit, which some hoped would help mend ties, but ended up crumbling um, before it was able to end. And so I think that when we look when we look forward in terms of what's happening with the Gulf crisis, in order to to make a resolution happen, um, we'll have to see some kind of changing of the framing of the uh, changing of the framing of the crisis or potentially changing of mediation efforts. Um, So I'll stop there. Thank you.